A parable is a small story that has a big, big impact. It's a short teaching with big, big message. And so that's what we're going to do today as we look at his last parable. And this last parable we're looking at is actually very fitting as a transition into our next sermon series. Because it deals with this sometimes misunderstood concept called the kingdom of God. Next Sunday, when you come in, there's going to be new banners, going to be a new series that we're going to go into called Kingdom Come. And in that series, we're going to be looking at this question. What does it mean for a person to seek first the kingdom of God in every aspect of their lives? What does that look like in our workplace, in our relationships, in our family, with our time, with our resources? What does it actually mean for us to seek first the kingdom of God? Of God. That's our question for next week. I hope you will be with us in that sermon series. If you have other plans, I hope you'll change plans because I really would love for you to all be here for that. But this week, and before we can ask that question, we have to understand what is the kingdom of God. Before we understand what it looks like to seek it, we have to understand what exactly is Jesus talking about. And that's really what this parable is about. Everywhere Jesus goes, and especially in many of his parables, he tells us about this kingdom of God. And yet when we hear that, I think it can be confusing. Because many of us, when we hear the word kingdom, our mind kind of goes back to the medieval times. We think of Camelot or knights, these greedy quests for power or territory. We think of kingdoms in terms of institutions to be grown or geographical territories to be won. But that's not what Jesus was talking about. The kind of kingdom that he's talking about is not primarily a physical kingdom. And so as we think about this idea of kingdom, we need to think in terms of this. Who is reigning? Who is ruling? There's a definition that I found this week that will kind of guide us today, and it will be on the screen. Here's a definition of the kingdom of God according to Jesus. The kingdom of God is the rule or reign of God inaugurated by the words and works of Jesus and consummated at his return. You're like, Ryan, that's a lot. I know. It's okay. We're going to get there. But you need to understand the kingdom of God is God's reign that was inaugurated. It was begun with the coming of Jesus, and it's going to be consummated at his return. Now, let me explain that for a moment this morning. In one sense, God has always and will always reign over all of creation, right? He alone is God. He alone is Lord. He alone is King. But ever since the fall of humanity into sin, as described in Genesis 3, there has been a refusal to acknowledge or to submit to God's reign. That was what happened when sin entered into the world. And the impact of that moment when Adam and Eve sinned is that that the, the effects of that were devastating, but they were also cosmic in nature. From the coming of sin into the world, nothing in creation is as it was meant to be. Everything has been marred by sin. So, for instance, instead of rest, we experience what? Anxiety. Instead of peace, there's dissension and there's strife. Instead of perfect relationship between God and humanity, there's a separation between us and God. Instead of life, there is death and decay. All of these things are a result of human sin. But what's true about the outside world, all of creation, if we're honest, is also true about our hearts, isn't it? That there's also brokenness within. Instead of gladly serving and loving Christ, what do we do? We try to set up our own kingdoms where where I'm the king. I make the decisions for my life. Everything revolves around 
me. That is the picture of a sinful heart toward God. Sin has impacted everything. From the Garden of Eden on, creation is still beautiful, and yet it is also broken. So when you come to the scriptures, what you find from Genesis 3 on is the revelation of how God is at work to make all of creation right again. The Bible, in essence, is a message that says this is how God is reestablishing his reign in the human story. This is how God is going to take all things that are wrong because of sin, and he is going to make them right. And so starting in the Old Testament, you have God call a man named Abraham. And he says, I'm going to make your descendants as numerous as the stars. And through those descendants, I am going to bless the nations. I'm going to bring my reign to the nations. Jesus falls through, or God falls through with that promise. He takes care of Israel. He rescues them from their oppression in Israel. He gives them his law, which is his revealed will. He gives them the prophets. He gives them the promised land. And yet in the midst of all this, they still struggle with sin. So what does he do? He gives them the sacrificial system. But friends, you need to understand this. All of that, all of these Old Testament stories are pointing to one pivotal moment where God's reign would come back in a dramatic way into our story. And that is in the coming of God himself. Jesus, God incarnate. Galatians 4 says this, But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law. Why? To redeem those who are under the law. To redeem back, to draw back, to make right again. You see, throughout the Old Testament, this had been promised. And so the people of Israel, they were always awaiting this Messiah, this one who would come to make things right, to establish God's reign, his kingdom. And with the coming of Jesus, it's exactly what it looked like was happening. Through his miracles, Jesus was making right what sin had done wrong. And so in essence, what do you find? That Jesus gives sight to the blind. He heals the sick. He gives freedom to those under spiritual oppression. All these things begin to happen and the people begin to take notice of this. They begin to say, could this be the Messiah? Could this be the one that was promised? Is this the one that will bring back God's reign? Well, the reality is you read the New Testament, though, is what? That almost everyone turned away from Jesus. Most everyone went back from following Jesus when he was not the kind of king they were expecting. They wanted a ruler who would have a physical kingdom that would provide them with physical goods, but God's reign didn't come up in that way, did it? When God's reign came in, it came in not through changing their circumstances, but what does he do? He begins to change hearts. Jesus, when he went to Jerusalem, did not go to Jerusalem to get rid of their Roman oppressors. Jesus went to Jerusalem to die on the cross as a sacrifice for our sin. It was in his death and resurrection that all of a sudden forgiveness for sin became available. So why? So that we could have a relationship with God. So that what sin had ruined, our relationship could be brought back together. As God began to take residence in lives, what does he do? He began to change people from the inside out. And that is the story of the New Testament. That's what he continues to do today. But friends, as you look around San Francisco, as you look around our world, what is clear? That his reign is not fully in effect, is it? Yes, he may rule in our hearts, but as we look around, the effects of sin are still all around us. And so that's why the scriptures point to this kingdom of God idea. 
Not only is the kingdom of God already come in the words of works in Jesus, he's broken into the human story, but there's still a not yet aspect to the kingdom. Jesus is still at work. He's changing hearts, but there's going to be a day where he returns and this comes final. He puts an end to sin and death. This world becomes the home that our hearts long for or where we are satisfied in his presence forever. But we're not there yet. And so where we find ourselves this morning, and as you think about the disciples, this is very important. We all find ourselves in this in-between period when it comes to the kingdom of God. On the one hand, it's already broken in. His reign is present. It's growing. But on the other hand, it's not finalized yet. It's not consummated until his return. This can be a hard place to be. No one likes to be found in between. And that's why Jesus gives us this parable today. And so if you would, read it with me. Luke chapter 13 Verse 18. This is the word of God. He said, therefore, this is Jesus speaking. What is the kingdom of God like? And what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden. And it grew and it became a tree. And the birds of the air made nest in its branches. And again, he said, to what shall I compare the kingdom of of God. It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. That's our last parable this morning. Now, for a moment, I want you to put yourself in the place of the disciples when they were hearing Jesus's words. If you're one of his disciples, you've already seen some amazing things, right? You've already seen Jesus heal tons of people. You've already seen Jesus take two loaves of bread and a fish and feed over 5,000 people, right? You've seen Jesus do all these things. You've heard the murmurings in the street that Jesus is the Messiah. So imagine what they must have been thinking when Jesus says, what shall I compare the kingdom of God to? I would imagine that they were expecting a response from Jesus that was tweet worthy, right? They were expecting something extravagant. They were expecting something big and immediate. But what does Jesus say? He does the exact opposite says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed, the smallest seed that they could imagine. He says the kingdom of God is like leaven, the most basic cooking product at their disposal. You see, this is what Jesus does in his parables. Over and over again, he turns expectations upside down. He's saying, my kingdom is not going to look like what you expect. The disciples were likely totally puzzled when Jesus said this word. But if you look at Jesus's life, does the picture of a mustard seed not make perfect sense? Instead of an extravagant palace, Jesus had been born where? Among farm animals. Instead of a crib, where was he placed? A manger. Instead of a royal welcome, who were his first visitors? Lowly shepherds. Instead of being raised in Rome or Jerusalem, where you expect God's anointed one to be raised, where is he raised? Nazareth, this kind of backwoods city. Nazareth, I like to think, uh, is, is a lot like Arkansas. People would say, could anything good come from Nazareth? And that's what I think people say about my home state of Arkansas. And now Jesus is here in Luke chapter 13. And he's surrounded by this group of uneducated, fearful, slow to understand, slow to believe disciples. From the world's perspective, could anything look smaller or weaker? Could anything look less significant? 
And yet what Jesus says in this parable is an important point, and it's something we have to hold on to, and that is this. The point of this parable is this. God's kingdom may look small and insignificant now, but it will expand until people from every nation experience both its shelter and its shade. That's the point of this parable. He says the kingdom is like a mustard seed. It looks small now. But just wait, because one day it's going to grow until every nation is under its wings. It's under its, its, its branches. Now, I realize that may not seem like big news to you this morning, but for the Jews, this would have been huge news. Because they expected God's reign to show up all at once. For God to come back and with his anointed one to bring a total change. But Jesus says, my kingdom isn't that way. It's going to work slowly and surely. It's going to move forward and it's going to progress. It may look weak, but it will become strong. Now, there's significant language in this parable that, that it's easy for us to miss. But for those in the Old Testament, they wouldn't have missed this because they knew their Old Testament really well. This language, this image of birds finding rest in a tree is one that occurs several times in the Old Testament at important places. One of those places is Ezekiel, is Ezekiel chapter 17. At this point, Israel was in exile. It looked like God's plan had gone awry, that, that God would not protect or do anything for his people. And God gives them this promise. It'll be on the screen. Thus says the Lord God, I myself will take a sprig of the lofty top of the cedar and will set it out. I will break off from the top most of its young twigs a tender one. And I myself will plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain height of Israel will I plant it, that it may bear branches and produce fruit and become a noble cedar. And under it will dwell every kind of bird in the shade of its branches. Birds of every sort will nest. And all the trees of the field shall know that I am the Lord. I bring low the high tree and make high the low tree. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I am the Lord, I have spoken, and I will do it. Now, the people that Jesus was talking to, they would have known this promise. God had said in Ezekiel, I'm going to do this. I'm going to grow my kingdom so that every bird can find rest and can find security. That's what that picture of shade and shelter in a tree is all about. He's saying they look for it in all these other places, but I will be that. My kingdom will provide that. And so Jesus comes in this parable. And what is he saying? He's saying, that's what I am about. That's what I'm about to do. I am bringing in a kingdom that is going to grow. And it's not just going to be a shade of a place of shade and shelter for Israel. No, it's going to be a shade and shelter for all the nations. Every kind of bird will come and find its rest in this tree. This is the fulfillment of everything God had promised all the way even back to Abraham when he said that there would be a blessing to the nations. We see a picture of this final day when God's kingdom has grown to its fullest extent in the book of Revelation. There's two passages that I'd like to read that just describe this kingdom when it's come to a completion. Revelation chapter 7 verse 9 says this, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all the tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, where? Who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. 
So it's a picture of all the nations coming into that tree that Jesus has just described. All of them are there. Now, what will that shade and security and shelter be like? Revelation chapter 21 says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. You see, when Jesus is talking the parable, the reason this is an encouraging word is he's saying, I am bringing this about. I am making all things new. It doesn't matter how small or insignificant my work, my kingdom seems now. You can take it to the bank. It's going to grow and it's going to be a blessing to the nations. It is the only kingdom that is going to last. I will make all wrong things right again. What an encouraging promise this morning. So the question becomes then, how can we actually apply a parable like this? What does this parable look like in real life? What does it actually matter for your Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday for this next month of your life? I would say this. Number one, this parable is a call for us to hold on to God's promise. Hold on to God's promise. You see, I think it is especially easy living in a place like San Francisco to feel like these disciples must have felt when Jesus spoke those words. How could something so small and insignificant become something so powerful? I mean, when you look around the city of San Francisco, when you look around uh, your, your neighborhood, when you look in your workplace, does brokenness not exist all around us? Brokenness is everywhere. It's very easy for us to think, God, what can you actually do to change all this? God, can you really fulfill your promise? Whenever I don't have a lunch meeting, I like to walk around this neighborhood to pray, to do, to spend some time in Scripture just to get out of the office for a little bit. And I'm telling you, it doesn't take very long of a walk before you see physical and emotional brokenness all around you. The same is true spiritually. You look at your friendships, you look at your workplace, people are worshiping all sorts of things. They're worshiping the gods of success, the gods of pleasure, the gods of a family, the gods of all these different things. And yet estimates tell us that only three to five percent of the population of San Francisco worships Jesus. Three to five percent. Spiritual brokenness all around us. It's easy to look at that and say, Jesus, are you sure that this promise is going to be fulfilled? Do you know the people at my workplace, Jesus? Do you know my neighbors? Do you know my classmates at Balboa or at Aptos or Lowell or SF State or City College? Have you seen what's going on? Can you really do that? It's easy for us to look at ourselves and say, as a Christian, I feel so small and insignificant. What good can I really do? I just don't see what our church could do to, to see that 3% become 10% or 15% or 30% or 50% of the city of San Francisco. I just don't see it, God. It's very easy for us to lose hope, to think, God, how can you change the nations? 
Friends, our perspective may cause us to think this is impossible. But in this parable, what does Jesus say? It is not impossible. Far from it, it is inevitable. My kingdom will move forward. It will grow. It will change lives until all people from all nations will come to see that I alone am Lord, that I am king, and that my reign is supreme. If the disciples could see what we see now, imagine what they would think. These disciples who were so weak, they were so uneducated, they grew from 12 to 120, then to 500, then to 5,000, to where now over 2 billion people at least profess worship of Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus' kingdom is not a kingdom that goes backwards. Jesus' kingdom is a movement that goes forward, and it's going to change everything. We as God's people need to hold on to that promise. But second, I would say this parable encourages us to get involved in God's plan. If his kingdom is going to grow and his kingdom's end is certain, then what does that do? It enables us who feel so small and insignificant today to give our lives to the only kingdom that matters. Far too many people live for lesser kingdoms. They build for kingdoms that they can see with their eyes, that they can touch with their hands. Jesus says, my kingdom is the only kingdom that lasts, so give your life to my kingdom. Do you realize that Jesus' invitation is on the table for every single one of you in this room to be part of a life-changing, world-changing movement under the one true king, Jesus Christ? If you're here this morning, you say, I am a follower of Jesus, then really it's not even an invitation, it's a command. The Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, says this. Jesus says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Jesus says, I'm king. I have all authority. And here's what you need to do. You need to just be obedient. Make disciples. I am with you. It is my power. It is my work. Through you, I will grow my kingdom to where all the nations, people from every tribe, every tongue, find rest in my presence. You realize that's why we, the mission of our church, First SF, is what it is. It's to lead people to love and live for Jesus. Because we know Jesus is the only hope of the world. He is the only place that they will find security. Let me say it this way. If you have a relationship with Jesus this morning, then you are one of those birds in the tree experiencing his shelter and his shade. Do you know that? You are one of those birds in this picture that that kingdom has grown and you're part of that kingdom. Now imagine you're that bird that's sitting on the branch and you look around and there are thousands of other birds flying tirelessly around the tree. They're looking for a place of rest. They're looking for a place of shade. And it's as if they can't see the tree. They're blind to it. One by one, you see all these birds begin to get so tired from their search that they fall to the ground. They can't go on anymore. At some point, would you not yell to those other birds? There's plenty of room in the tree. This is a trustworthy tree. I found shade and shelter in this tree. Of course you would. Friends, we don't have to imagine this scenario. This is the spiritual condition of the majority of the people you interact with every single week. Tirelessly going from one thing to another to find identity and significance and worth and shade and shelter. And God has placed you 
through his grace into this kingdom, into this tree. And he's called you to be an ambassador for his kingdom. To tell others about Jesus and what he has done. When is the last time you've stopped to ask this question? And if you haven't, I pray that you will do so today. Where is God working to build his kingdom and how can I get involved? When's the last morning that you woke up and you said, God, where are you working in this day to build your kingdom and how can I get involved with that? You see, far too many of us don't ask that question in the morning. Why? Because we're so focused on building our own kingdoms. We may say Jesus is the king of my life, but then in our actions and our behaviors, it reveals this mentality. God, not your will, but mine. God, not your fame, but mine. God, not your glory, but mine. We get invested in our own little kingdoms. But what's the problem with our kingdoms? They do not last. No matter how great you build your kingdom to be, it has no impact on the world. It has no impact on eternity. Jesus says, give your life to the kingdom that matters most. And so that's what we're going to be talking about over this next series. What does it mean to seek first the kingdom of God? Ask this question, where is God working in the church and how can I be involved? Have you asked that? Where is God at work? Who are the two or three people that I need to help lead in this church to love and live for Jesus one step closer? Who are those people? Maybe it's one of those service opportunities that Mike mentioned earlier in in our time together. There's an opportunity to serve and to pour your life into people. Where is God involved in the church? How can I be involved? Another question for you to ask. Where is God working in my relationships and how can I be involved? Think about these categories. Work, school, neighborhood, family. What if every single day you asked God, will you show me one thing that you're doing to build your kingdom in my family? God, what is one way that you're building your kingdom in my workplace? God, how can I be involved? Who can I be praying for? Who do I need to invite over for dinner? Who do I need to pour my life into? Who do I need to share the good news of Jesus Christ with? Where are you at work and how can I be involved? Last question, where is God working around the world and how can I be involved? You see, Jesus' tree, it doesn't just encompass Hayes Valley or San Francisco or America. What does it say? That it provides shade and shelter to all nations. Matthew 24, Jesus says this, And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. What does that mean? He says, I'm not coming back until this gospel, this redeeming work that I have done is spread to all the nations. I will tell you this, there are plenty of opportunities that you have to get involved in what God is doing around the world. Number one, you can pray. It's not a small thing. You can pray for our mission partners that are serving in hard areas around the world, proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. Number two, you can give. You can support those missionaries. You can support our local partners here in the city and around the world doing that work. But friends, let me ask you this. Have you ever considered going to work alongside them? Have you ever spent any amount of your life in an overseas context sharing what Jesus has done through Jesus Christ, what God has done through Jesus Christ? You say, Ryan, I don't know what I would do. I will tell you this. We will equip you. We will train you. We will teach you everything that you need to know as you go and go on one of those trips. You say, Ryan, I don't, I don't have the money to do something like that. We will help you raise support. If God can raise people from the dead, 
He can provide the money for that trip, okay? We'll teach you. We'll help you to raise support. You say, Ryan, I don't have the time. Let me challenge you with something. What if in the coming year you set aside some or all of your vacation time to serve the advancement of God's kingdom around the world rather than going to Disneyland? I'm not saying Disneyland's bad. I'm very thankful for Disneyland. Mickey Mouse in our house, big fans. But what if for one year you said, you know what, I'm going to set aside our vacation time and we are going to go serve globally. If you say, I'm in need of being spiritually refreshed, I can promise you that will happen more through a mission trip than it will through going to Disneyland. We've got opportunities this coming year and we're going to try to give you plenty of advance notice so you can prepare. Next year, in April, we're going to be going to Turkey to work with college students and young professionals. In June, we're going to be going to Ukraine to do an English camp and share the gospel in that way. In the fall, most likely in August, we're going to be going to China. And then potentially in May, we're going to be doing a trip to Jerusalem. You've got opportunities. We will give you everything you need. We will equip you. We will train you. Here's the question. Are you available? You see, it does not matter. You do not have to be famous or charismatic or successful to have an influence on the world for God's kingdom. It does not matter if you're a plumber or if you're a school teacher, a business leader, a millionaire, or a recovering alcoholic. God can use you to do his work, whether that's in the church, whether that's in your relationships, or whether it's around the world. The one factor that must be there is this, your availability. Say, God, use me. Join in God's work. Last but not least, as we conclude, we are called in this parable to rest in God's provision. You see, here's an encouraging reality. At the end of the day, it is God who will grow his kingdom. All we have to do is be obedient. Just like Paul said, I I planted, Apollos watered, but what? But God gives the growth. It's not on you. The burden is not on you. You're not going to grow God's kingdom. He's going to do that. All we are called to do is to be available and obedient. Today, we have everything we need in Christ. If you've repented of your sin, you've turned and trusted in Jesus, you have everything you need to lead somebody to Jesus. You have everything you need to lead them one step closer to loving and living for Jesus. You have everything you need to go on a mission trip around the world to share your faith. The same God that is going to work through you is also going to work in you to grow you. And that's why I love this illustration of leaven. Leaven takes a while, but what? If it, as it's worked in, what happens? Everything is transformed by that leaven. Is that not what Jesus does in us to make us more and more like him? The gospel, when it comes into our life, when we receive the good news about what Jesus has done, it starts small, right? To some of our dismay, we aren't changed overnight, <laughs> We don't become an immediately self-controlled person or a loving person or a patient person. But over time, what does the Holy Spirit do? As he grows in your life, he uses circumstances and people and the church and other things to make you more and more slowly but surely just like Jesus. Until the day when you're just like him, when you're glorified and you are with him for eternity. You see, that seed that starts in your heart is going to slowly work its way into your thoughts and your beliefs and your actions, and then through you into other people, and then through those people into other people, until the day of revelation comes when it says this, the kingdom of the world will become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever.